Ephesians 6, verse 10 says, Finally, my brethren. So he's talking to the church. There's some people that believe that if you really are saved, you won't go through any difficulty. And I don't know where they got that idea. It certainly wasn't from the Bible because Jesus said, In this world you will have, not might, you will have tribulation. All those who seek to live godly life will experience persecution. My brethren, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. So, for, first of all, we know the devil's real because God says he is. We know his weapons are tricks and deceits. We know that we've been given the power of God to, to not only defend against him, but we're called to overcome him. Jesus says several times that he has finished his work. He's seated at the right hand of the Father until his enemies be made his footstool. Guess whose job that is? That's our job. But he wouldn't give us that job without giving us his ability to do it. And the reason most of us struggle so much is we're not looking at his strength, we're looking at our strength, and we, we, look, we look at our strength and ourselves and what we know about ourselves and say, I'm no match for him, and you're right, but God never told you to be a match for him. He told you to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. For fighting with God's might on the one hand and the devil's deceits on the other hand. And boy, if we're ever living in a day when people are getting deceived easily, even the church, and that's exactly what the scripture says will happen. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. So look at the person next to you. If they've got flesh and blood, you're not wrestling with them. Right, husbands and wives? But against principalities and powers. Yes, the devil in her right now. It's principalities and powers against rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, because that's who we're wrestling against, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand in the evil day, and having done all to stand, stand therefore. We've seen that the armor of God, and I've seen people teach this and had people, you know, practice putting on the helmet of salvation, practice putting on the belt of truth, and, and that's fine if it helps you remember what they are, but that's not what he's talking about. Literally, this is t- says, put him on. Several places, Paul says, put on Christ and make no provision for the flesh. In other words, don't leave any of you hanging out. Put on Christ. So the armor of God is nothing more than acting like him. So how can I act like God? Because you're his child. That's the ability that he gives you. But it does take an act of your will, and we'll talk about that down the road. But first of all, we've got to discover what this armor is. Verse 14, stand therefore, having girded your waist with the belt of truth. We've talked about that. The reason the first part of the armor, the first and most essential part of God is truth. He is truth. Therefore, the first thing in order to successfully wage spiritual warfare is to make sure you're operating in truth. First of all, truth with yourself that you're not making excuses for yourself, that you're not fooling yourself, that you're not pretending you're somewhere where you're not. And we are masters of that. And when we do that, we're simply entering into Satan's territory because he's the deceiver. And when we deceive ourselves, we don't, he doesn't have to do anything with us. We just do it to ourselves. And we've talked about that already. Then put on the breastplate of righteousness. And that's what we're talking about. The, the reason the breastplate is so important is it protects your heart. And we've seen that the Bible says that we are to guard our hearts with all diligence, for out of it flow the issues of life. Satan's goal is to get into your heart. Now, he can't occupy it, but he can plant in your heart what we're going to see later on are fiery darts. And if he can get that in your heart and you don't get extinguish it or get rid of it quickly, it will cause a fire to burn and in Hebrews it tells us be careful because if you don't deal with that stuff it will form a root of bitterness out of which not only will you be defiled but many others will be defiled and so that's what it's about so this this righteousness is a protection against your heart and we saw we're looking at righteousness from two basic points of view and people generally talk about one or the other but it's both of them together The first aspect of righteousness is just simply living right before God. The foundation of it is, before you get into any of the other subjects of righteousness and what Jesus bought for us, is you've got to decide whether you're living right before God. I'm not saying perfect, but right before God. And we saw that's not a legalistic requirement. It's because of your relationship with Him. 
Because He is righteousness and holiness. And unrighteousness pulls you away from Him. It creates a division between you and Him. It doesn't mean He doesn't love you. It doesn't even mean that your salvation's at stake, although if you continue to live in it long enough, you can endanger it because you'll harden your heart to the conviction, which we're going to talk about tonight, that rescues you. So we've talked about righteousness from the point of view of living. You don't hear a lot about that anymore. You hear a lot about the other righteousness, which is what Jesus paid for. But having paid for it, then He expects us to live that way. And again, it's a growing process, but if you're not set that as your goal to live righteous before Him, you won't. That was popular, wasn't it? (laughs) All right. The other side of this is, because what the devil's after is separating you from God, from your armor. You are in spiritual warfare, whether you realize it or not. And what the enemy wants to do is to get you, get between you and your armor. Because then you don't have a defense against him. So what he's trying to do is get in your heart. The first way he's going to try to do it is to get you to live wrong. If he can't do that, what he's going to try to do is separate you from God by getting at your confidence before him, by telling him you're wrong in God's eyes, even if you're not. And that's condemnation. Turn with me to to, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. There's a lot of confusion out there in teaching about this. And most of the time it's because people take their favorite scriptures and focus on those and don't recognize there are other scriptures that balance that out. Coming back from the meeting this afternoon, we came on down on 128 during the rush hour. I remember the first time we moved back in this area because we hadn't lived here for seven or eight years. And I used to live in, we used to live in Boston. I used to commute then. I commuted in and out of Boston. So I'm, you know, I, I learned to drive on 128. When I drove, first time I drove it on in the rush hour after we'd moved back here, this was in the, in the 80s, I discovered that instead of adding a new lane of traffic, they found the cheaper way of doing it. They let you drive in the breakdown lane. Isn't that wild? So I'm driving along, <laughs> you know, figuring I got this protective area on this side in case somebody, I got to move around somebody, and some guy comes flying past me on the right. On most roads, there's what's called a shoulder on either side. Ever drive along and there's construction, there'll, there'll be a sign up there saying, warning, no shoulder. That's telling you, you don't have any room for error. You get off the road, you crash. And the point is this. On either side of the paved highway, there is a shoulder, and then after, which is your buffer area. After that, there's some kind of ditch. And whether you go in the ditch on the left-hand side or the ditch on the right-hand side, you're off track. And if the devil can't get you in the ditch on the left-hand side, he's going to try to get you in the ditch on the right-hand side. And those ditches are extremes where you take something the Bible says about you or about Christ and, and, and you ignore the other side of the road. And here's an example of that. The Bible tells us through Romans, through Galatians, through most of Hebrews and other sections of Scripture that when we came to Christ, He gave us His righteousness. And we've talked about that. We've talked about that from the point of view of when He comes to condemn you You've been given Jesus' righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin became sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Then people take that and say, All right, I've been made the righteousness of God. It's a done deal, so I can live any way I want. You just went from one side of the road to the other side of the road. 
Because it doesn't say that. He gives you His righteousness so that now you can live like Him. That's why Paul says, put on Christ and make no provision for the flesh. People that say, I'm the righteousness of God, I live in grace, therefore I can do all I want. What they've done is they've put Christ on and they've made provision for the flesh. Because He's paid for my sin, I can do what I want. That's making provision for your flesh. And it's an insult to the Spirit of grace because He didn't pay for your sins so you could do what you wanted to do. In fact, if you read the Scriptures carefully, you'll find we are more restricted in the New Testament than they were in the Old Testament. But it's not a legalism. It's a restraint. Paul says, I restrained myself. Love for Christ restrains me controls me because I want to please Him because I want to live in a way that I represent Him. Virtually every day I pray. I recognize there's a healthy fear of God in me. Not that He's going to get angry at me because I know who He is. That I, When I stand before you either in this pulpit or in just talking with you as some casual conversation, I am representing Him to you. That's an awesome responsibility. It means every word that comes out of my mouth, I have to have the intention of representing Him. There are too many people out there that says, the Lord said this and the Lord said that. The Bible says we're going to stand before Him and give an account for every idle word. And I sense that those may be the idle words. You said I said that. I don't remember saying that. You don't hear me saying, thus say the Lord a lot. But that's because I reverence Him and respect Him that I want to represent Him well. So we've got these two, we've got these two teachings in the Bible. We've got this teaching of, 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 of that, you know, that we're to live right. On the other hand, if we mess up, there's, your heart convicts you. So we talked about this balance last week. We began to talk about this balance between conviction and condemnation. Both of them can make you feel bad. Both of them can, to, can work on your heart. One of them comes from God and the other comes from the devil. Now, do you suppose it matters to know which one is which? Because remember, we're in a warfare. So God's saying something to you on the one hand and the devil's taking shots at you on the other. You better learn to recognize where they're coming from and recognize who's talking to you because we're going to see in a few minutes they have very different goals. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Now this is Paul's correcting them. The first letter to the Corinthians was a correction and a rebuke. He wrote an additional letter called the letter, the sorrowful letter. This letter is a follow-up to that. Let's start in verse um, 6. Nevertheless, God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the comfort coming of Titus. So what's happened is Paul has corrected them. If you look in 1 Corinthians, you'll see what some of the issues were. The biggest issue is there was a man living among them who was living with his stepmother. And Paul was upset at them because nobody did anything about it. So he said at one point, he said, if you don't do something about it, I'm going to have to turn him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. See, God will correct us, but it's for the purpose of redeeming us and delivering us from the consequences of what we're doing. You don't hear a lot of teaching about this nowadays. But it's Bible. So Paul writes a letter to them, correcting them, and then their response is Paul's being legalistic. Paul's proud. So the implication here is that they refuse to let him in the church that he founded and he's the apostle over. So Paul writes this letter. Before he did, he sends Titus to them. And Titus is coming back with a report that they're beginning to hear and receive the correction. And that's what he's talking about here. So I was comforted by the coming of Titus, verse 7. Not only by his coming, but also by the consolation which, which he 
comforted in you when he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, that's for their repentance basically, your zeal for me so that I rejoiced even more. For even if I made you sorry, so Paul made them sorry, sorrowful. Huh, I thought we're supposed to be happy. Well, James tells us in one place we're to mourn. It's interesting, in the beginning of James he says to throw a party. He says to throw a party when you're going through trouble and then he said when you realize in chapter 4 that you're nothing, you've been adulteresses in your relationship with God, he said you need to mourn and let your joy be turned to weeping. Paul says, I intentionally made you sorry. (gasps) How could he do that? Because he loved them. Then how do we discern that? Verse 8. For even if I made you sorry or sorrowful with my letter, I don't regret it. Though I did regret it, he regretted having to do it. For I perceive that the same epistle or letter made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice not that you were made sorry. In other words, I'm not trying to make... How many of your parents... How many of you parents have ever had to discipline your children? You remember, remember, you remember? My mother used to say, this is going to hurt me more than you. And I said, oh yeah? All right, let's do that and I'll do this to you. Until I got to be a parent and realized she was right. It hurt me because the last thing I wanted to do was have the discipline and spank that precious child. So when I would say, if you do that again, you're going to get spanked. I'm praying, oh, please don't do that again. Please don't do that again. Please don't do it again. Why? Because I don't want to have to do that. But when they did it again anyway, now I've got a choice to make. I'm either going to tell them that my word is true or I'm going to be selfish. I'm either going to do something for them I don't want to do, but I'm going to do it because I love them and it's what's good for them instead of backing off for what feels better for me. So Paul says, I didn't make you sorry because I enjoy making you sorry, but why why was I pleased that it made you sorry? For your, your sorrow, verse 9 said led to repentance. That's a word you don't hear a whole lot about, although there are books being written out there now that you don't need to repent. Have you anybody heard that doctrine? It's out there. That because we're under grace, we don't need to repent. Well, what do you do with First John? Well, some of these people teach that that's not written to Christians. You've got to work hard but then what do, you do in, what do you do with Revelation? Where Jesus dictating letters to seven churches. And five of them says, this is the head of the church, repent. Now the word repent just means acknowledge what you've done, change your mind, and then change your actions. It literally means to turn around and go in another direction. Here's what it does not mean. It does not mean be sorry. Sorrow is part of it, but it's the the emotion you get from facing what you've done. But that's not repentance. That's sorrow. Notice he said, I rejoice because your sorrow led to repentance. If sorrow was the same as repentance he wouldn't have had to lead to something else. Oh, this is exciting, isn't it, tonight? For you were made sorry in a godly manner or for godly purpose that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. What he's telling them there is you were in danger of suffering loss if there was not a repentance. Why does a loving father or mother correct their children? Because they know that behavior is going to ultimately cost them some loss. If they don't learn to obey you, 
the stakes go higher as they get out in life. Somewhere, at some point, they're going to run into somebody that's going to make them do something they don't want to do. And if you don't make them do it, it may ultimately be someone in a uniform with a badge and a gun. Steve goes into the prison. They're full of people that found out they could not do what they wanted to do. But wouldn't it have been a better lesson to learn at home? I'll let you in on a secret. You can't do everything you want to do. So a loving father, knowing that if I don't correct you now, there's going to be a much greater consequence out of love, will bring sorrow temporarily so that ultimately you will not suffer loss. That's the godly type of sorrow. That's conviction. And the primary way that God does it with Christians is through conviction in your heart. In the Old Testament, the law was written on stone tablets. In the New Testament, the law, there's a law. I thought we weren't under the law. You need to think differently. It's the law of liberty. But liberty doesn't mean you can do what you want. Liberty means you're now free to obey it because God's given you the ability to obey it. But this new law is written in your heart. It's called your conscience. The Bible in the New Testament, we talked about this last week, defines sin as what violates your conscience. That's why Paul says, I'll govern my actions near you by how it affects your conscience. He says, I know it's okay to eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols. As long as I give thanks for them, that sanctifies the food. I've recognized it's come from God. It doesn't matter how it got to me. God's provided for me. That sanctifies it. It's okay for me to eat. But if my brother sitting next to me asks, oh, wasn't that sacrificed to an idol? He said, then I won't eat it. I'll govern my liberty by how it affects your conscience. Because the scripture goes on to say, because if I encourage him to violate his conscience, I'm encouraging my brother to sin. Even though Paul says, I know, for me it's okay. See, that means what may be okay for you may not be okay for me. Now, there's certain things (laughs) you don't need to listen to your conscience about. Stealing. Your conscience will bother you when you do it, but you don't need to check with your conscience, is it okay to steal this or not? (laughs) Lying. You don't need to check with your conscience. You know, is it okay? You know, Pastor Michael, it's okay for him to lie, but it's not okay. No, it's, it's, it's not okay to lie. Adultery. Fornication. You don't need to discern that. The Bible says things strong about that. There's things the Bible says, don't do them. But it doesn't say, go to marry. It doesn't say, there's just loads of decisions you make during the day that may be right or wrong, and your conscience may begin to bother you. Even it's watching a program. Something inside you says, "Mm," it may not be, don't watch it. It may just be "Mm," this little twinge inside. That's your conscience. And if you override it, you just make yourself less sensitive the next time. We talked about that before. All right. That's good to go back over it again. Verse 9. No, verse 10. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. He's not just talking about getting to heaven. He's talking about the fullness of God's life and blessing in our lives. Not to be regretted. But sorrow of the world, the world's sorrow, produces death. So Paul here is telling us that there's two types of sorry. One of them comes from God for the purpose of correction and bringing us to a place of 
turning around and doing something differently that's pleasing to him. The other type of sorrow comes from the world, and we know who the God of this world is, and its goal is to produce death. Not physical death, but the experience of death. So there's two types of sorrow. The first we're going to call conviction. The second we're going to call condemnation. Both of them produce sorrow, but you need to learn to discern which one it is because your response depends on which one it is. Of course, if you don't listen to anything, it doesn't matter because you'll harden your heart to either one of them. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 11, verses we read all the time, and we kind of read over some of these during communion. Just kind of read through them quickly because they make us uncomfortable or at least me. Now this is written in the context of Paul, we're back in the first letter, correcting them about something. Here he's correcting them about their communion service. They call them love feasts. And what they were doing is they would come together, they weren't quite as organized and you know, as maybe we are, uh, but they would come together and they would, they would bring the, instead of having you know, the little tiny wafers and the nice little juice cups, they brought their own communion elements. They'd bring bread and they'd bring wine or juice or whatever it is where they're drinking. And they would come together. But what you had is you had, you know, you had the Pastor Michael group over here. And they would turn their chairs in a circle and share their food together, you know. And then you might have, I don't know, the, the, the Mike Ski group over here. You know, he's got his group over here. And they brought Polish sausage and all the other good stuff that he, you know, you know plus the bread and then, you know. And then, but you might have a group over here that just, they didn't have anything. And then you got, I won't even point to anybody back there. Then you got back the group out there, and they just kind of overdid it a little bit. And they're just kind of wobbly. They're, they're in the spirit all right, but the wrong one. And this is the Lord's table they're celebrating together. And Paul is bringing correction. Notice how sweet he is about it. Notice how he kind of softens everything so that it's easy to be received. Verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself. We have the privilege and the responsibility of examining ourselves. So before God does anything with us, He gives you the opportunity to examine yourself. Not go on some witch hunt. Not spend three days questioning every little thing you thought. You know if you're not feeling right inside. Or you read the Word and it begins to kind of feel uncomfortable. Or there are verses you just want, I don't want to read that one. That's the one you probably need <laughs> to read. That's why it's a good idea not just to read selected scriptures. You know, those promise boxes are nice, but don't use that for your devotion. Because you'll read all about scriptures in one subject area. And you'll pick the subject areas that you like. That's like a child picking out your menu for the next week. (laughs) Moving right along. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner drinks judgment, that's a fun word, to himself not discerning the Lord's body. The word judgment in Greek literally means to draw a line. Take sides. It means to draw a line. It's like Elijah did in the Old Testament. He said, all right, it's enough of this. He drew a line. He says, whoever's for God, you stand on this side. Moses did that at one point. And it was important you were on the right side of his line. Because the other side opened up. (laughs) so being on the right side matters I want to hear about grace this is grace 
verse 30. For this reason, many, say many, many. are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. That word means died. Just from not eating the Lord's table correctly, it's not a matter of, of, you know, whether you stand, sit, use wafers or bread. It's not the what you do. That's not what he's talking about. It's the attitude of the heart towards this sacred remembrance of the blood that our Lord shed for us. It's the heart he's correcting. The unworthy manner doesn't mean your technique. It means the attitude of the heart. But look at this point. For if we judge ourselves, we will not be judged by God, basically. You get the privilege of judging yourself first. And this is what Paul was upset at this church about, because they hadn't done that. So he was stepped in to do it for them. Now watch why. For when we're judged, we're chastened by the Lord. The goal of chastening is to bring you around under the right path. Why does he want to do that? So that you may not be condemned with the world. God will go to whatever extreme he has to to correct you so that you won't end up being condemned with the world. That's how much he loves you. He's God. He can say, Brendan, you've done it enough. I'm done with you. Literally go to... But he won't do that. He'll keep after you and after you and after you. And if you don't respond to the conviction of the Word and the Holy Spirit, then He will increase the pressure to get you to turn around and go the right direction. That's the godly type of sorrow. That's conviction. Starts with just that inner thing in your heart. Then it comes from the Word speaking to you about it then it may come through some brother or sister saying something to you. And if you don't respond to that, it's hardening your heart even more. God will do something to get your attention. Notice some of these were actually sick. You don't hear a lot of teaching about this, do you? I don't know why that happened. Well, apparently, the way we live our life can have an effect. Now remember, we're talking about spiritual warfare. We're talking about spiritual warfare. We're talking about the breastplate of righteousness. And if I have an attitude of, towards the Lord's table that just takes the whole thing for granted, then part of that righteousness is down. And now the enemy can get in, apparently, with sickness. It doesn't come from God. But when you drop your armor, just like when you went, if you went out last night without an umbrella, there's a good chance you're going to get wet. You don't blame the umbrella, do you? You don't bring the umbrella manufacturer, do you? You got out from underneath it. But when we're chastened by the Lord, it's so that we won't be condemned with the world. Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 5. He's talking about correction. The writer of Hebrews has just finished correcting them. He says, Have you forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons? Notice it's out of a relationship. Notice it's out of a relationship. Notice it's not an angry God in heaven trying to take your fun away from you. It's out of a relationship of a father to a son. Have you forgotten the exhortation that speaks to you as sons and daughters? My son, do not despise the chastening 
of the Lord. That word literally means training. The training of the Lord. Nor be discouraged when you're rebuked by Him. That implies a verbal rebuke. Notice it goes to the next level. For whom the Lord loves, whom the Lord loves, He chastens and scourges. That's an interesting word. That Greek word is mastigo, which referred to sticks. When Jesus was was, um, scourged, the first stage was they beat him with narrow rods, sticks. Those are called mastigo. This basically means spanked. It's not saying sickness and disease. What he's saying is something that makes you uncomfortable. Something that makes you uncomfortable. Ask Jonah. You know Jonah? Remember Jonah? God spoke to him and said, go to Nineveh and preach a seven-word sermon. Jonah didn't want to do that because he was afraid that if he preached that sermon, and the sermon didn't give the Ninevites any hope that God was going to forgive them. It just said, basically, get your affairs in order because in seven days you're toast. It's a loose translation, but you're gone. You're history. And Jonah said, if they repent, God might forgive them. And I don't want God forgiving them because they're nasty people. They're not good as I am. So he got on a boat to go the opposite direction. And God got a hold of him. He knew he was wrong because when the storm comes and the sailors are trying to figure out why the storm came, Jonah said, So they threw him overboard. And God had him swallowed away a great fish. That fish was God's mastigo. But it was also his protection. Because in that sea, there were other things that were hungry that night also. And this God-provided hotel. (laughs) And it was. It kept him from being eaten by sharks. But it wasn't a Weston Inn. It wasn't uh, Four Seasons with concierge service and room service and air conditioning and little chocolates on your pillow that they... No, he was sitting in gastric juices. So here's the way it's set up. It's protecting him from his own rebellion at the same time in a way that doesn't make him want to stay there. perfect balance. He doesn't realize he's being protected. All he knows is, where am I? But in the middle of those gastric juices, it dawns on him, it would be better to obey God and see all the Ninevites saved than to stay in the belly of this fish. And the moment he repents, that fish expels him. That's not the word the Bible uses, but... It's late at night and you've just eaten. Expels him out onto the shore, heading towards Nineveh. God has a way of giving you a push in the direction once you've repented. I wonder what he looked like coming out of there. Now, I've, I've, I've tried to find this. I've heard a teacher once teach this. So I'm explaining to you. It's not what the Bible says, and I haven't been able to verify it. But I had a teacher that I respect say this. So I'm going to at least pass it on to you with that footnote. But it, it really sounds good. There was a particular God that they worshipped in Nineveh. And there was a prophecy that someday that God was going to come in the city all white. Imagine what three days in the belly of that fish did to his hair and the color of his clothes. 
So while he's rebelling and God's mistigoing him and bringing him to the point of saying, God, I'll do your will, God's now going to use that very thing to propel him in the direction of God's will and increase his effectiveness to carry out. But that would not have happened if in the belly of that fish, Jonah didn't repent and change his mind. So that was godly sorrow in the belly of that fish. Let's go on. This is important. I want again to get through the armor, but this is really the big issue where people struggle. Verse 7. If, everybody say if. If, if means it's up to you. I can't think of an if that has God after it. I never thought of that before. I haven't studied it out. But I suspect there are, I can't think of an if that says, if God does this. But there are plenty of things that say, if you. If means it's up to you. So there's an opportunity here, but not everybody will take it. If you endure chastening. That means you go through it. Notice it doesn't say if you like it. We're led too much by what we like or don't like. And that puts us kind of down where our kids are, doesn't it? Aren't they led by what they like and don't like? Maturity means I'm led by what's right and what's good and what's pleasing to God, not what I like. If you endure, endure kind of implies it's not fun. I don't like the word endure. I like the word now. Therefore, there is no condemnation. I, li- I like those now words. But endure, ooh, that's kind of in with patience, isn't it? If you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. Now, that doesn't mean if you don't endure it, you're not a son. What he's saying, if you look at other translations and you study this out, what it's saying is if you will go through and allow the chastening, the correction, the conviction to work on you, then you will allow God to be able to work in you the way a father does his son. I'm going to say that again. If you will go through it, and allow that conviction to work in you, if you will allow that correction and chastening to work in you, then you are going to permit God to be able to work with you and in you as a father does with his son. And there's a goal to that. And that's what we're getting to. For what son is there whom his father doesn't chasten? Well, that was not written in today, but that's, that's a rhetorical question. But if you are without chastening of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. In fact, in other words, the fact that God's convicting you inside is proof that you're His child and He cares for you. Furthermore, we had human fathers, verse 9, who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be subject to the Father of spirits and live. Isn't that interesting? For they indeed, talking about our fathers in the flesh, indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but He, God, for our profit. As a father, I was never, you know, you, 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 you do your best under the circumstances. Sometimes your situation, you know, maybe I should extend some grace here. You know, you just really ask God for wisdom. And then you sometimes pray, oh God, I hope I did the right thing. God always does the right thing. That's what that says. He always does the right thing when it comes to you. He always does the right thing. Let me let you in on a secret. If you can get this simple thing down, it will make a big difference in your life. Ready? Now, don't tell anybody else this secret. It's a benefit of being here tonight. God is always right. God is always right. Now there's a corollary to that. That means if I agree with God, then I'm right. But if I don't agree with God, 
and he's always right, guess what that means? I'm wrong. So if something's not working, guess what? It's not God. It's not God. So if it's not God, and there are only two in this deal, unless we do what Adam did. God, there's you, her, and me. All I know is it's not me. Because what he said is it's the woman you gave me. Verse 10. For they indeed for a few days chastened us to seem best to them, but he for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. God's goal with you, whether it's your goal or not, God's goal with you because, remember it starts in verse 5, because you're his child, God's goal with you is to bring you to the place where you act on the outside like he is. Where we put on Christ and act like he does. So, well, that's not unfair. He's God. Yeah, but who are you? You're his child. When you were born again, he put his nature in you. All he's telling you to do is act like your new nature, not your old flesh. But his goal is to bring you to a place. Notice, his goal is not to bring you to a place of fun. It's not to bring you to a place of pleasure, although you will enjoy the place he's taking you. But the goal is to bring us to... See, the word holiness is not one of those words that say, oh, wow, we get to be holy. It's like if I said to you, if God wants to make you rich... Oh, you'd all be standing up, yeah, I want that. God wants to give you peace. Oh, yeah, I want that. God wants to make you holy. That doesn't sound like fun. Then you won't enjoy being around God because he is holy. So there must be something about holiness that we're not getting. Because if he's holy and in the presence of the Lord is fullness of joy, somehow joy and holiness must be connected. That means there's something we don't understand. That means we have to renew our mind or change how we think. See, the devil sold us a bill of goods saying, well... There's, you know, you, you give your life to God and you won't ever have any fun anymore. You can't do this and you can't do that and you can't do this. He is absolute life. Verse 11, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present. Amen. But painful. Nevertheless, afterwards, it yields peaceable fruit of righteousness. Notice this, to those who have been trained by it. That implies you can go through the chastening and if you don't receive it for what it's for, you won't be trained by it. And you know what that means with God? You'll go back around the mountain again. And you'll go through it again. Because God is single-minded. Years ago, there was something, I don't even remember what it is anymore. But there's something I just didn't want to do, I didn't want to do, I didn't want to do, I didn't want to do. And I went through a long period, I didn't want to do it, I didn't want to do it. And when I got on to growing into other things, I even moved to some other things. Finally, I said, okay, I'll do it. Guess where God took me back to? Back to the thing He told me to do, begin with. Pastor Sam, the founding pastor of this church, and I've heard other people say this. So if you're having trouble hearing from God, you just, you know, you just don't, you know, go back to the last thing he told you to do and do it because that's where he is. See, we want to skip a step. I don't like that one, so I'll skip over that. I don't like the peas, so I'll eat the applesauce because then I'm going to get the ice cream. But God's going to, I told you the story about lima beans. 
I hated lima beans. I know they came from hell. And their express purpose was to kill me. I mean, as a seven or eight year old, I, they would, and my mother made me eat them. I mean, she didn't shove them down my throat. But here's what happened. I only had to eat two, but those two looked like they were this huge. There were two of them sitting on my plate. Now, we, were, we lived in, outside of Philadelphia, and they had lima beans that came from New Jersey. They're, they were good size. And there's two of them sitting, all, I just had to eat those two. But I couldn't get up from the table unless I ate those two. And I knew they were going to kill me. I could, my throat was already constricting just at the thought of it. And so it was a battle of wills. And praise God, her will was stronger than mine. Because I'd still be sitting there. But I ate them. I didn't like it. But today one of my favorite vegetables is lima beans. Why? Because I discovered I could eat them. They weren't as bad as I thought once I ate them. But they produced in me the peaceable fruit of righteousness. I learned I could eat something I didn't like. And that has been an invaluable lesson. Those lima beans are long gone. But that lesson has served me well. To those who've been trained by it. And God's primary method of that is the conviction of the Holy Spirit putting pressure on your spirit. But it's what you do in response to that as to whether you're going to allow God to train you. If you harden yourself to that, God loves you, heal up the ante. He'll increase the pressure until he'll give you more, bigger lima beans <laughs> until you come to that place where you respond because he's determined to produce in you his holiness because he knows what the benefit of it for you and for the kingdom of God. That's how much he loves you. Remember, we'll end with this. Verse 5 again says, For consider, consider him, who, verse 5, For have you forgotten? See, we get in the middle of it, we forget. Have you forgotten the exhortation that was given to you as sons by a father who loves you? We didn't get into the distinction yet, so next week we're going to get into by faith. (laughs) How to learn to tell the difference between conviction of the Holy Spirit and the condemnation of the devil. Because they'll both can work in you sometimes even at the same time. You can have God convicting you and the devil jumps on it and condemns you. It's going to get very tricky. But I'm going to teach you, I'm going to give you uh, uh, some, some clear things to look at so you can discern which it is. And we'll do that next week.